Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm John Hartkin, ABI's Public Affairs Officer. We hope that you and yours are safe, and we appreciate you listening. Today's podcast spotlights important issues arising at the intersection of insurance law and bankruptcy. Talking with ABI Editor-at-Large Bill Rochelle is Susan Gummo, author of ABI's Bankruptcy and Insurance Law Manual, which published this year in its fourth edition. The manual provides the basics of insurance law for the bankruptcy practitioner and the basics of bankruptcy law for the insurance practitioner. Gummo is a partner at Foran Glennon, where she concentrates her practice in general commercial matters, including bankruptcy, insurance coverage, and commercial litigation. Now I'll turn the discussion over to our host, Bill Rochelle. Thank you, John. We are presenting this podcast in celebration of ABI's publication of the fourth edition of the book on insurance written by Susan Gummo. It is indeed an extraordinary book. Describing the book is really rather simple. It tells you everything you need to know about an insurance policy if an issue arises in a bankruptcy case, be it a liquidation in Chapter 7 or more possibly a reorganization in Chapter 11. The more than 200-page book is a remarkable uh, achievement by Ms. Gummo. Uh, it, uh, for instance, if you are representing a insurance company and there is an issue that arises in a bankruptcy case, this book of hers will speak to the issue and give you a quick insight into the leading authorities, sometimes both ways, if there is a dispute. Likewise, if you are representing a debtor or a uh, Chapter 11 Creditors Committee, again, this book will give you a quick introduction and thorough analysis of the issues regarding insurance. And by the way, uh, Ms. Gummo is actively engaged in two of the most significant mass tort bankruptcies that are alive in the courts today, and I refer to the Boy Scouts of America as well as USA Gymnastics. And Susan, I think that is a place to begin, not with those particular bankruptcies, but with the notion of mass torts and the insurance issues that those cases will entail. So can you tell us, Susan, what is the genesis and the beginning of the development of insurance law in bankruptcy cases involving mass torts? Thank you so much for that introduction, Bill. I would first just like to say that the views and opinions expressed today should not be taken as legal advice and are simply my opinions. And as you mentioned, an insurance policy is an important asset of the bankruptcy estate, and especially in the mass tort bankruptcies. Bankruptcy provides tools for dealing with these mass tort claims. And Johns Manville is one of the early cases. Most people are familiar with Johns Manville. It was a manufacturer of asbestos-containing material. 
The company was faced with thousands of claims and ultimately filed bankruptcy. They sought to have the insurers pay the claims that were asserted against the company, and ultimately the insurance company and the debtor reached a settlement. The settlement included the establishment of a trust. The insurers agreed to pay specific amounts of insurance proceeds to the trust in exchange for broad releases. And the asbestos claims were then channeled to the trust. Many companies today faced with mass torts, with product liability claims, and now, as you mentioned, we're seeing sex abuse claims. Susan, let me let me ask you something about let me ask you something about Manville. At the time, uh, was there any provision in the bankruptcy code permitting the kind of a trust uh, relationship that they developed in that case? Actually, there was no specific bankruptcy code provision that provided for the channeling of claims to a trust. As a result of Johns Manville, Congress enacted special legislation governing plans of reorganization for debtors faced with asbestos claims. 11 U.S.C. Section 524G provides that a debtor can channel all claims, including future claims, to a court-approved trust. An injunction prohibits the assertion of those claims other than directly against the asbestos trust. 524G allows a debtor then to discharge not only past claims, but also future asbestos claims. And this bankruptcy code provision is essentially the same structure that was used in Johns Manville. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, what were some of the techniques used uh, in Manville and in later cases to ensure that the insurance company isn't somehow or other going to be stuck later on with a lawsuit when the insurance company thought it had dumped off all of its liability. Well, the provisions of the plan of reorganization for Johns Manville included broad releases for the insurance companies, and it's those broad releases that make it attractive for the insurance companies to, to, to settle and to pay policy proceeds into a trust to be used for settlement of those claims. And because 524G is only available for asbestos, the courts then look to other provisions of the bankruptcy code to enter similar channeling injunctions. For example, 11 U.S.C. Section 105A authorizes a bankruptcy court to issue any order necessary to carry out the bankruptcy. And this provision is used by courts to approve channeling injunctions which channel the claims to a trust. Well, in addition to the releases in favor of the insurance company, are there any other concepts that are used to give further comfort to the insurance company that it's not going to be held liable later on. What we're seeing in the mass tort product liability cases that are being filed today are policy buybacks. And what is that exactly? The, the insurance policy, oftentimes there is a dispute 
between the insurance company and the debtor with regard to coverage available under the policies there might be issues with regard to whether the claims are actually covered an insurance policy may have applicable exclusions coverage litigation can be complex it can be expensive and there are several uncertainties as a result the insurance company and the debtor can resolve that coverage dispute through a settlement the settlement then would again be similar to what occurred in John's Manville which is an agreement by the insurance company to pay a specific amount that can be used by the debtor to pay the mass tort claims the insurance company then buys back the policy from the insured and essentially the policy is canceled and that gives the insurance company certainty that there will be no further claims asserted under its policy. Yeah, let, let me ask you this uh, about these claims buybacks and, and everything else, these broad releases. Very often in these mass tort cases, the, uh, shall we say, the torts have not yet manifest themselves. So you're going to be dealing with people who are future claimants or creditors. How is it that you can give constitutional, uh, shall we say, notice to these unknown creditors to ensure that they can't sue an insurance company later? There will be a future claims representative that will be appointed to protect the interests of those future unknown claimants. With regard, and, and there will be a carve-out of any proceeds payable to the trust, which will be then allocated to pay those future claims. And, and to your point, Bill, notice is, is extremely important in this context. In, in order to achieve the, the broad releases, in addition to the policy buyback, there, there needs to be very broad notice to all known claimants as well as any potentially interested parties. Well, how do you give notice to claimants that you don't do not know are claimants? Those the the unknown claimants then are are noticed through publication. I see. Okay, it's the uh, the old uh, shall we say sleight of hand to theoretically give notice to people who don't know that they're creditors. You just publish it in newspapers all over the country. Well, very interesting. Well, listen, Susan, let's go on to your more typical bankruptcy case, not a mass bankruptcy, but let's say that a lawyer is representing a tort claimant. You know, maybe the client's car got hit by a truck uh, being operated before bankruptcy by a company that later goes into bankruptcy. And you either know or have reason to believe that their insurance coverage to, uh, to cover that claim, and you see no reason you might have to take two cents on the dollar. What can you, as the lawyer for a creditor, do in those circumstances to try to recover from the insurance policy? Typically in these situations, Bill, we see the plaintiffs come into the bankruptcy court and file a motion to modify the automatic stay. And they, they ultimately want to get to the 
insurance funds so that they can be paid on their claim the bankruptcy court then needs to evaluate whether or not there is cause to modify the stay the plaintiff argues that they want their day in court and the debtors then would take a position with regard to the impact on the bankruptcy estate and the motions are more likely to be granted if the plaintiff will only pursue insurance so oftentimes we see the debtor agree to terminate the stay to allow the litigation to proceed if the plaintiff will waive all claims against the estate and agree to only pursue the debtor as a nominal party and have any judgment paid only from insurance proceeds. Now, this situation, in contrast to what we just discussed, the mass tort situation, this is going to be where there are less claims and there is sufficient insurance to pay those claims. If the debtor is contemplating establishing a trust to pay the claims, then the bankruptcy court may not grant those motions. I see. Let's assume that all of this happens and that there's sufficient insurance coverage and you get one of these lift-stay orders so that the claimant can, <clears throat> can in effect, only sue the insurance company. Does the debtor still have an obligation to cooperate with the insurance company? Most policies have what is referred to as a cooperation clause, which provides that the insured must cooperate with the settlement and defense of the claims asserted against it. And typically what this means is complying with discovery requests, providing documents and evidence that is necessary to defend a claim. And in the bankruptcy context, courts will consider the burden on the estate. So that the provision is still enforceable, but the extent that it's enforceable may differ depending on the the status of the debtor, whether it's solvent or administratively insolvent. I see. Well, tell you what, Susan, let's move on to a somewhat related issue because not all insurance policies are created equal, and I must confess that there is one area that I have not very well understood, and that is the difference of insurance policies that have a deductible as compared to those that have what is known as a self-insured retention. Can you tell us what the difference is and how that makes any difference to both the insured as well as claimants? It's a very important distinction in the bankruptcy context, Bill. A self-insured retention, also referred to as an SIR, and a deductible serve the same purpose, which is to allot a portion of the risk to the insured. However, they operate differently. For example, claims subject to a deductible are typically paid by the insurance company from dollar one. The insurer then would seek reimbursement for those amounts from the insured. With regard to an SIR, an SIR, again, self-insured retention, acts more as primary insurance. It acts more as an actual insurance policy. And with an SIR, it is the insured that is obligated to pay and defend all claims within the SIR. 
It's only after the SIR amount has been satisfied that the obligations of the insurance company will arise. For example, if an insurance policy has a $1 million SIR and there is a judgment for $1.5 million, the insured would be responsible for that $1 million and the insurance company would pay the $500,000 above that self-insured $1 million retention. Well, let me ask you this, Susan. Let's assume basically as a variation on what we were talking about before on a motion to modify the automatic stay. If there is a large self-insured retention, would a claimant creditor be able to get a modification of the automatic stay attempting directly and immediately to sue the insurance company? Well, just, just to be clear, the plaintiff would still sue the debtor as a nominal party. Right. It's only in direct action states that you can sue the insurance company. But the, the plaintiff then would stipulate that they're only going to pursue insurance. And this is why it is significant whether the policy has a deductible or an SIR. Because if the policy has a $1 million SIR and the claimant has a claim with a value of $100,000, it's unlikely that there will ever be a judgment that will reach insurance policy proceeds. So that is something that needs to be evaluated by the claimants before they, they pursue a claim which may not be paid ultimately because the SIR is, is significant. I see. So in other words, it sounds to me like you're saying that in a bankruptcy context, the insurance company, when it's a self-insured retention, doesn't have to drop down to cover uh, the first dollar of a loss. Is that right? Absolutely. Whether a policy has an SIR or a deductible impacts who is left with a claim against the debtor. Essentially, who is paid in bankruptcy dollars? With a deductible, it would be the insurance company that files a proof of claim for any deductible amounts owed. And with an SIR, it's that third-party claimant that is paid by the debtor for amounts due within the SIR. And courts have consistently held that the insurance company does not drop down and pay amounts due within the SIR. And the reason for that is because insurance policies are written based upon risk evaluation. They insure the insured's exposure to third-party liability. They're not insuring the solvency of the insured. And again, the insurance policy is a contract and the policy terms remain enforceable in the bankruptcy proceeding. So again, unless a policy specifically states that it will drop down when the insured is insolvent or when an underlying carrier is insolvent, uh, the courts will not require drop down. I see. Okay, well, the 
creditor claimant's lawyer has got to be careful then in those circumstances, or you might get yourself uh, hornswoggled. Uh, let's move on to a, a different situation altogether. Let's say that the debtor has a claim uh, against the insurance company, and Susan, let's put you in your role representing the insurance company, and you recognize the claim, you agree what the amount is that the insurance company needs to pay. But you know, in these Chapter 11 cases, there is often a lot of dispute about who is entitled to get that money. You know, is it the secured creditor? Uh, is it an unsecured asset? Just what is it? So how, representing the insurance company, can you, shall we say, ensure that you're not going to have to pay twice? That, that's absolutely correct, Bill. It's an important point for first-party insurance carriers because with a first-party policy and the, where the debtor experiences a loss to their property, for example, if the insurance warehouse catches on fire, that claim would be payable to the debtor. Because it's payable to the debtor, the automatic stay does not apply to prevent that payment. But the insurance company has concerns that they pay the proper party. As you mentioned, there can be multiple parties that claim a right to those insurance proceeds. There might be lost payees, there might be mortgagees, vendor liens, and in the bankruptcy context, again, a creditor may have super priority liens on all of the debtor assets, and that could include insurance proceeds. So, first party insurance companies then, when they're handling a claim, will want to coordinate with bankruptcy counsel. They can work together, they can file a stipulation with the bankruptcy court, and what that stipulation would include is information with regard to the type of loss. There would be an amount payable by the insurer, and the stipulation will also identify to whom payment will be made, whether it's a debtor or whether it's a secured creditor. And again, in this instance, notice is important because you want to notice all potentially interested parties. And if that entity claims a right to those proceeds, they then have an opportunity to object. I see. Okay, well, that sounds like uh, that's just a situation where you need to dot the I's and cross the T's to be sure that you're properly covered. Well, let me ask you something, Susan, that has been uh, an issue I've wondered about for years. Very often in Chapter 11 cases these days where the debtor has enormous amounts of secured debt, there are virtually no uh, unsecured, unencumbered assets. And perhaps about the only asset creditors might have is a director's and officer's liability insurance policy. But then on the other hand, I know insurance policies will routinely have what I have heard to be called an insured versus insured exclusion, where basically the, the insured company cannot sue itself. So how is it, Susan, that creditors can get their hands on proceeds from a director's and officer's liability insurance policy? A director and officer liability policy can potentially provide three types of coverage. Side A coverage is available to protect the individual directors. Side B provides indemnity coverage 
for the company to the extent they they indemnify the directors and officers. And side, side C coverage is direct coverage for the entity for securities claims. While there are potentially three different coverages available under a DNO policy, there's typically only one limit. So if the policy only provides side A coverage, there's no property of the estate issue. If they provide coverage to the debt or entity as well, then the issue becomes, does the coverage for the debtor make all proceeds property of the estate? And most courts find that the DNO policy is designed to protect the individual directors and officers, so they evaluate the facts of each case. And if claims against the company are simply speculative or hypothetical, then a court may find that those proceeds are not property of the estate and the directors and officers can access those proceeds. Now, you mentioned the insured versus insured exclusion. And that particular exclusion does have significant implications when the insured is in bankruptcy. In its most basic form, a policy might state that this policy does not apply to any claim made against any insured by any insured or by the company. Policies are not designed to benefit related entities. And the insured versus insured exclusion eliminates the possibility of, of collusion. And there are two lines of authority interpreting that insured versus insured exclusion. One line of cases finds that claims brought by or on behalf of the company are excluded because the bankruptcy estate can have no greater rights than the insured. Essentially, it's a step into the shoes argument, right? The other line of cases states that the claims brought by an estate representative, possibly a trustee, does not have that same risk of collusion because the trustee then is asserting claims on behalf of the creditors. They're not asserting the claim on behalf of the debtor entity. And in those instances, the courts will allow the suits to go forward. Um, and, and what we're finding now, Bill, is that a lot of the policies have an exception to that insured versus insured exclusion. And those policies specifically state that the exclusion will not apply to trustees, receivers, and estate representatives. And that allows the estate to pursue those claims. I see. I see. I see. Well, listen, tell you what, Susan. Let's last deal with the subject of business interruption insurance because every few days in the newspaper, I have been reading stories about business interruption insurance. Most recently, another story saying that if businesses which were closed down or had their businesses severely restricted because of the virus attack, if they have claims for business interruption insurance, it is going to put many, many insurance companies basically into their own insolvency proceedings, put them out of business. Could you, 
I, I, well, let's put it this way, Susan. I'm not going to ask you to guess how these issues are going to come down eventually in the courts, but what are the issues in terms of whether or not business interruption insurance covers a situation such as we have today, where a business has either been shut down or disrupted on account of the virus? Yes, let me, let me make two points here. One is just generally with regard to business interruption. Business interruption coverage protects for economic loss that results when there is an insured peril. For example, if a hurricane damages a building that and that loss is covered under the policy and results in that location being shut down for repairs, the insured is going to seek payment for losses resulting from the shutdown, essentially lost profits. Now, if that company files bankruptcy, there's a couple issues that could arise with regard to business insurance. Was the company profitable before the loss, before going into bankruptcy, or were they operating at a loss? And what happens if the debtor sells the property? Does that stop the business interruption? And those are important issues uh, with regard to business interruption in the bankruptcy context. Now, with regard to what we're seeing today and with regard to pandemics, typically the business interruption must be caused by a loss that is covered under the policy. And that is going to be defined in the policy and typically requires physical loss or damage to property, fire damage, water damage. Most policies will contain exclusions that could apply to the COVID pandemic. Uh, the, the exclusion may say that viruses, disease, and, and pandemics are excluded. So as in any case, it's going to go to the language of the policy to determine whether or not those claims for business interruption are covered. I see. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, Ms. Gummo, I have a feeling that maybe a year, year and a half, two years from now, we may be back with another podcast uh, tearing apart some of the issues that have arisen when Chapter 11 debtors or their trustees try to make a claim for business interruption occurring during this pandemic. Well, Ms. Gummo, this has been a very interesting discussion. I thank you very much. And for our listeners, because indeed, if you are interested in purchasing Ms. Gummo's book on insurance, just go to the ABI website. And from there, go to the ABI bookstore. And you can purchase her book online. And it will be mailed to you in a matter of days. Well, again, Ms. Gummo, I thank you very much, and I turn it back to uh, John Hartkin in the ABI office. Thank you to Susan and Bill for this engaging discussion. And thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. This and more than 200 others can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Stay safe and have a wonderful day.